If somebody just told me, like, this isn't going to make you into a boy, and there's no guarantee that doing any of this is going to resolve your distress, you're perfect as you are as a woman. The issue isn't your body, it's the way that you think of it. And no matter what you, what you do to yourself, what drugs you take, what, what surgeries you get, you're always going to be a woman. And you are enough. I wouldn't be dealing with any of this right now. Did anyone say that to you? Chloe, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. I've admired you from afar, I think, for the last maybe almost year since you started really being public with your advocacy. So I'm excited for the conversation today. So first off, I think you and I have a lot actually in common being we're both from California and similar areas. So tell me about where you're from and how you grew up. Yeah, so I'm from the the Central Valley area Mm -hmm. of California. I'm from Antica and um, born and raised there, never... Mm -hmm. Never really been out of the, the area. And what was your what was life like growing up for you? Um I mean, I'm the youngest of the five kids. I've got two older sisters, two older brothers, and so I kinda had influence from both sexes. But I was a uh, kind of in between on being like a girly girl and a tomboy in a lot of ways. Like I liked playing dress up with my older sisters and pretending that we were characters from shows and I loved when they would put makeup on me, and I stole, like, their, their Bratz dolls and their Barbie dolls and stuff. And I also liked playing video games with my older brothers and and playing outside and getting dirty. Um, I have always kind of been on technology using the internet, um, and part of that is... Um, I kind of struggled a lot socially growing up, especially as I got older, hit puberty, and went into middle school. Um, I was bullied quite a bit in elementary school, and after one school year, when I finally managed to to make friends, I was back at square one because I had to move neighborhoods and then move schools, and that was when all my older siblings started to move out. There's a pretty significant age gap between me and my older siblings, about seven to eight years so I, for a lot of my childhood, I was kind of almost like an only only child, and so I just turned to the internet. And what was the internet, what was that like, turning to the internet? What happened? Um, I mean, I mostly, when I first started, before I got a phone, um, I got my first computer when I was about nine years old. It was a pre-built, like, gaming computer that my dad had for a while, and we was just kind of sitting around, he didn't really have any use for it, and so he just decided to, to give it to me. And I like doing artwork on there. I started with Microsoft Paint and a mouse. And then eventually, one year for Christmas, I got a a drawing tablet. And I was really into communities having to do with artwork. And I also watched... I played video games on my PC, and I watched streamers. And... I mean, I was, I was kind of a nerd, so I, I really liked stuff like that. And I was really interested in online communities having to do with stuff with that. So when I got my first phone, um, I mean, everybody else my age was was using the cell phone. Many of them had gotten phones as young as, like, second grade. How old were you at this I time? I was 11. Okay. And 
now everybody's using social media apps like Instagram and Snapchat. And so yeah, like I wanted to kids. see yeah, <laughs> yeah, I wanted to see what I was missing out on. So of course I decided to make my first accounts on on those platforms. And Instagram was the one that I used the most. It was the most engaging to me because I mean it's very image oriented and because I like seeing I like browsing communities around like art and the shows and anime that I watched and manga and uh, video games that I played. And that was actually my introduction to the trans community. It wasn't right away. It wasn't directly into that, into the LGBT community, but a lot of users in these communities were people who identified as LGBT and especially like transgender or non-binary. And many of those individuals were girls around my age, anywhere from like 12 to maybe like their early 20s. And these people were quite like me in that they were kind of nerdy, <laughs> um, had always been on the boyish side from a very young age and often feel like they didn't really fit in. And there were posts they would make that were sometimes just not really related to the media that we were, that they were, that they were fans of. It was about like their personal lives. And I just felt like I really in some way that I connected to these people. Had you know, did you had you known anyone like that in school or had you ever met anyone like that? No, I I knew there was a girl I knew who was a lesbian, but other than that it was really new to me because I I've I heard the the word transgender a few times being used by like adults in their conversations or on the TV, but I never really cared about it until it was in my face. So what was the moment when you first began to think, well, maybe I'm transgender? Yeah, I mean, I was 11, 12 years old. So I was already at a point in time where naturally I started to to wonder about what I wanted to be in the world, mm. who I was and what my role would be. And at first it started with, well, I've always kind of liked girls a little bit, so maybe I'm not entirely straight. Maybe I'm bisexual or, or pansexual. And then eventually I just kept switching between labels, trying to figure out which one felt right. And it wasn't just about my sexuality or who I, who I liked now. It was about my gender because... I mean, I never really 100% felt like the other girls. Mm. You know, I had I had different interests from them. I acted differently from them, and I felt like I even looked differently from them. Um, I had some body image issues. I started developing at a really young age. I was around eight or nine, just going into fourth grade, when my breasts started to visibly develop, and I had to start wearing bras. And that was a really... That was a really difficult thing for me to adjust to, especially at a young age. Um, I grew up with older sisters, so I would sometimes I would see them watching shows or like uh, they would have magazines around that were very like I would often talk about things like relationships or like having like having how you how you look, and so from a very young age I was very cognizant of of things like that. And I often felt like I just couldn't match up to these images that I would see in the media. And social media was really exacerbating that. 
especially on Instagram where there's a lot of images of girls wearing a lot of makeup, wearing bikinis in very sexualized poses and in situations. And on one hand, I didn't really want to be like that, but it was also like, if that's what being a girl is supposed to be like, why aren't I like that? I, I, I just don't think I match up to other women. And I mean, I thought that all being a woman had to offer was just hardship because that was all that I was taught. I would always hear about how, how terrible periods are, how scary the possibility of getting pregnant and then actually being pregnant and then how painful childbirth is and then how scary menopause is and other girls' accounts of being sexually abused or assaulted or stalked growing up. And it got to the point that I was like, well, is something like that going to happen to me when I'm an adult? Is, is this all that being a woman chalks up to? If it is, then I, I don't want any part of that. It's a pretty bum deal if that is all it is. And why would anyone want part of that? I thought it was. So you're online, you're seeing this other, you know, you're seeing people that say they're transgender online doing mm. part of the art that you love and video games and things that you're already interested in. And you're having this sort of interior maybe conflict about what it means to even be a woman. So what happens next? Yeah, so as I dove further and further into the trans community and saw what it was all about, I wasn't really, up until after the beginning of my medical transition, I wasn't really interacting directly with any individuals within the community. But I started seeing things about how people have sex brains, how if somebody experiences gender dysphoria or even acts more like the opposite sex, then that probably means, that very likely means actually, that they have a brain that is more like the opposite sex and that is what's making them feel that way or behave that way. And, you know, there's always, I, I always felt like there was something separating me from other kids my age and especially other girls. And the more I read up into it, the more it made sense to me. And eventually I just felt like there's just no way that I could be a girl. I think that I was actually supposed to be a boy this whole time. And did you feel, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start pursuing that. And Did you feel very unhappy during that time? Like you, you said you wanted to figure out as an 11-year-old, like what is, what's my role in the world or how do I, what is my future like? Did you feel like a deep discontent or unhappiness or anxiety? Or what was that feeling like as you were having that logical progression of, well, if these things don't add up and this is what this, you know, research says, then I or these people online are saying, then this means that I must be, I must not be a girl. But what was going on inside your, your I guess, your emotions in your heart? Um... I mean, I was at a new school. I, I'd been there for a few years, but I just didn't really fit in, and it was kind of clicky. Um, and I didn't really have a lot of close friends, so I was I was kind of lonely. But I feel like that's pretty normal at that age. I think most kids that age feel like that. 
So when you, after you went through this sort of thought process, what did you do with, what did you do with the conclusion that you reached? I'm a boy. I thought that, I believe that I was actually a boy and that I was actually my parents' son and not their daughter. And so I started pursuing that and, uh, I started to experiment a little with my expression, started cutting my hair shorter slowly and slowly over time. Um, whenever I'd go shopping, I'd start going for the boy section more often. And I mean, it wasn't unusual for me to do that, but I was try I was starting to get rid of all my skirts and dresses and pinks and bright colors and swap it out for a more masculine wardrobe. And, um, I um, started telling my, some of my friends, my closer friends at school, that I was going to transition, that I wanted, to, I wanted them to refer to me by a new name, by new pronouns, and as a boy. And most of them actually responded pretty negatively. The, the love bombing didn't really come right away. The affirmation didn't really come right away. Um, and I actually got bullied for a little bit. There were a lot of people who picked on me for it. But um, I waited a little bit to tell my parents about it because I, I was really, I was scared of how they would react. I didn't know if they were going to be supportive of me doing this. But I knew that I, I mean, if I wanted to go through transition, I couldn't keep them in, in the dark for long. What was it like telling your parents? It was something that I'd been wanting to do for some time, but I just wasn't sure of how they would react. I didn't know if, I mean, I'd heard stories from, from other transgender people about their, pa their parents almost hating them after they told them that they were transgender. Even some kids getting, getting kicked out or moving to a new home and just being in a really rough home situation. And I didn't really expect anything like that out of out of my own parents. I knew that they would love me still, but it made it a little bit more tense. And so I decided that I would write them a letter so that I didn't have to bring it up face-to-face, -face, that I could give them some time to, to think about it. Because I, I knew that as a parent, that's got to be a hard thing to hear from your own kid. I don't think anybody would really expect that. So I gave them some time. I just told them that I had something important to tell them that I left on the coffee table and I was looking forward to how they would respond. And uh, when they read it, they were, they were supportive at first. They wanted me to, they wanted to be supportive of me and to help me get through this. But at the same time, they were also very cautious and they didn't really know where this feeling was coming from. They didn't know what to do about this. So they decided that, I mean, we're not experts on this, so we're going to get a professional involved instead, and we're going to get you a therapist. And did you go to a therapist? Yeah, I did. This was the first time you were gonna, you'd been to therapy? Yeah, I mean, I... I've been to a psychiatrist before as a kid. Um, 
and gotten diagnosed with ADHD before, but not like a like a personal therapist or anything like that. Did you feel like you still had ADHD at this point? And how um, is that affecting you? I mean, I didn't doubt the diagnosis for a while. I was a kid who was pretty inattentive in a lot of my classes. I didn't I often just skipped out on my schoolwork and didn't really pay attention because I just didn't really see any meaning in in doing doing any of it. Um, and I would I had like I had really bad organization skills growing up, and it, it's still something that I kind of uh, struggle with, but. I also had some social difficulties growing up, which I've I've heard is common for people with ADHD, but it was really hard for me growing up. And I thought that, I think part of it is that I was so heavily pathologized as a kid that I just accepted that all of my, my hardships came down to clinical issues. But I think that, I think now that the ADHD diagnosis was actually false and that I'm actually on the spectrum, but they just refuse to to diagnose me with it. Almost like the word is word autism is too scary to say out loud. Like I I had a screening for it when I was about four or five because I wasn't really my teachers in preschool and kindergarten noticed that I wasn't really interacting normally with other kids and that I was kind of just aloof and in my own world. And I had some symptoms of it that they thought was, they told my parents, like, you should probably get your, your kid, um, you should probably get a screening for your kid. And they did. And the physician just told them, I think your kid's too smart to be on the spectrum. She's she's very smart. She's very smart for her age. That's so crazy <laughs> because so many autistic people with autism can be so smart. Right. Uh, and, and so that's just kind of a, a weird thing to say. Yeah, I had a second series of screenings when I was 17 years old. And it was pretty much the same response. Like, well, you're really well-spoken and you're really intelligent. It's it's not impossible. It's a possibility. But let's let's wait a little bit. What blows my mind with all of this, and we're obviously going to get into like what happens with this crazy thing that you endured with Kaiser and 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 all of that. But even what you just said earlier, you felt pathologized. It was like very insightful what you said. Like you felt pathologized as a kid. I think yeah. were the words you used. And I think our society is so unable to deal with just people that are just different. Like we have this expectation of the way you have to be. So if you just act different socially, because I grew up homeschooled. I grew up because kind of like, you know, a nerd among nerds. My dad, you know, my mom jokes, my dad might be on the spectrum, you know, <laughs> things like that. And it's like, I don't know if that's a joke, but meaning because he's just highly bright and a little bit, you know, interacts socially just different than other people. And just like all this pathologizing of kids just because they're different yeah. when everyone's different in different ways, right? So not to like overgeneralize, but I think we do our disservice to kids and absolutely and authentic diversity like diversity of personality and talent by making medical issues out of all of it you know calling yeah. it all a medical issue yeah and i was also diagnosed with disruptive behavior disorder what does that mean well for me 
I mean, I really struggled with making friends and I was getting bullied quite a bit in elementary school and I would often take it out physically on my bullies. I would often hit them, like push them to the ground, like throw things at them. I would often throw tantrums in class and I didn't really know how to emotionally regulate myself and I would take it out externally. I guess... How old were you? I was, I think, like five to eight years old when when I was like that. Do you think if you hadn't been bullied and if you had been in a learning environment that was more suited to you, where you weren't feeling bored all the time, you would have, this is obviously a huge hypothetical, but you would have, you might not have acted out as much? Absolutely. Because you were just forced to sit in a classroom with your bullies. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, this is boring. Yeah, that was I'm that was a bully. big part of it. I didn't really feel like I had much of a community. And I didn't, because my older siblings were so much older than me, like I didn't, I felt like I just didn't really have anybody to relate to. And I, mm. growing up, I felt like there was something wrong with me. Like I, that I, I thought as a kid even that I was evil. And that's why nobody liked me. It probably also didn't help that they... Uh, started medicating me for my for my ADHD diagnosis when I was about 11, 10 or 11. And what kind it, of medication? It was uh they started with long release medication, but they're constantly switching me between meds, like different doses, different different medications to try to get you to what do your homework? Yeah. <laughs> you just didn't like your homework. I didn't. It the was, screen was, was more entertaining. It was boring. I'd it was rather boring. I'd rather draw or play video games. I had I had, should have been homeschooled. <laughs> <laughs> I had sketches all over my schoolwork all the time, and I always get in trouble for it. Because you're an artist. Right. And sometimes I, my teachers would even get me in trouble for it. Like, they would, I would get, like, a perfect score on a test, but I would draw something silly on the side of it, and they would just give me a zero for it. No way. Yeah. And I also wasn't allowed to draw outside because it was dangerous to have a pencil out of, out of the classroom. What school did you go to? <laughs> I I won't name the school, okay. but <laughs> it was a public school. Yeah, it was, and it was kind of California. Yeah, it was very. It was kind of out in the country, but it was one of the oldest schools in the district, and they were kind of, kind of stingy, very clicky. So you weren't allowed to color outside, meaning, or to draw outside, meaning, if you wanted to take your art notebook and do sketching of a tree, you weren't allowed to do that. Yeah, because why? Because it's dangerous to have a pencil. What if I, what if I get stabbed in the eye? And you how know? old were you? <laughs> um, the school that said that I went there from fifth to to eighth grade. <laughs> so you're like eleven years old. Yeah. Wow. All right. So you're you're going through all this, and you're basically feeling like you're different, understandably so, because the world is asking you to be this particular. Th- kind of person that fits in this very rigid academic category and even I would say gender stereotype category because you were saying it was magazines and makeup and this idea of like women are this way and because you're not that way then maybe I'm not a woman Mm -hmm. and eventually I did end up liking those things but I mean for a while I just didn't want anything to do with those things and there's still a lot of I feel like in, in, in some ways I still have some traditionally more masculine-leaning behaviors. And it's just one of those many things that made me feel like there's something separating me from other women. Like I was just 
watching from the outside while other women got to, I felt like they got to interact with each other and relate to each other. And I didn't feel like I was that way at all. So were you looking to fit in somewhere? Yeah, absolutely. And you thought, I have a better shot of fitting in with the boys than the girls. Yeah. I mean, I also struggle to socialize with boys a little bit, but sometimes I found it easier to relate to like boys' sense sense of humor and a lot of their interests and even the way that we we felt about about the world. Yeah, I think boys in a way can be easier to get along with. <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember growing up, I mean, Obviously, there's a lot of differences, but I had a lot of brothers, and it was like for a while I didn't feel like I knew how to interact with girls until yeah. I kind of figured it out. But because I didn't grow up with sisters, I didn't have a sister till I was nine years old. So, yeah, I growing up I had a kind of offensive sense of humor that a lot of <laughs> girls just didn't really like at all. <laughs> um, meaning just jokes that were not yeah. We're a little off-colored. That, that, that's very funny. From like being five years old, off-color jokes. <laughs> um, <laughs> were there, you know, did you have a favorite joke? Mm. Do you Not a particular favorite joke. But um, I remember in kindergarten, up to like first or second grade, we would have assignments where we would learn about important historical figures and we'd have to like color them in. Mm-hmm. I'd like... <laughs> I draw like band-aids on their faces and like give them notes. Give them noise what? Give them like give them like running makeup, blushing, oh. nosebleed. Oh no. Just ran just random stuff. Just like yeah, and your teacher's stuff. like, she's definitely a boy. Uh. <laughs> Did you save any of that artwork? I feel it's like probably somewhere hilarious. in my closet. It's pretty hilarious. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, so you're just a very funny, quirky girl who's like tough and figuring out and smart and figuring out her place in the world. And then you end up with this therapist. <laughs> well, you went to the psychiatrist who gave you the meds as an eight-year-old because you didn't like to sit in your chair all day in this boring school. And then you end up, I'm not making fun of it. I'm just, it, there's an absurdity to the way that our systems don't make space for diversity, quite frankly. Um, diversity of personality and talent, I would call it. Yeah. Anyway, so, but then you tell your parents, okay, I must be a boy, and you're seeing this stuff on transgender stuff online, and you go to this therapist. Tell me, tell me what happens there. And how old are you? Yeah, I was, I was, um, this was just before my 13th birthday. So I was 12 going on 13. And by and the way, have you started, you've started puberty already because you started yeah, early. Yeah. So was that very uncomfortable? I know for me, puberty was very uncomfortable. Yeah, I, I was about to three expect. to four years in already. And it was really uncomfortable because I, there is like that stress of developing early and like knowing that other people can see these changes and that they'll have whatever thoughts about that. And then feeling like I have to look a certain way and meet a certain expectation. And also, it was just, it's hard as a kid dealing with that sort of change and so rapidly. Did you feel, did that come with a feeling of shame? Yeah, absolutely. On one hand, it was like, I'm really excited to develop and look pretty. But I also felt like that just wasn't happening, that I wasn't, I thought that my life was over because I didn't look like a supermodel at age 12, you know? So 
it's so toxic what the supermodel weirdo culture has done. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in the age of like... Because you're on Instagram, right? Yeah, yeah. I grew up in the age where you're expected to be thick, curvy, have a big voluptuous body. And I just wasn't like that. You know, I was skinny, kind of on the athletic side. My breasts were pretty... They were a little bit on the smaller side and my hips weren't very developed yet. And I mean, I was just a kid, but I didn't really understand that. But I also liked having my hair short and I had bigger shoulders, a little bit of muscle. And sometimes what people would like make comments about like the, like how muscular I was. And I was really conscious of that. And I felt like I didn't even look like a woman. But I, I had been through several therapists over the years. The first one I had was especially lousy. He just didn't really this was after you told your parents, I think I'm a boy. Yeah, I, I didn't I didn't realize how much these these body image issues were bothering me. I mean, I think and for the women listening, I want to hear what they have to say in the comments about their experience with this, because for me as a teen girl, when I first hit puberty, probably 11 years old or maybe 10, actually, I started. But I remember feeling so much shame when someone told my mom, oh, Lila needs a bra because my breasts were developing and Instead of it feeling like, oh, this is a beautiful thing and every female, every woman's body is unique and I need to uniquely embrace mine, there was just like straight up shame. And when my period came, shame. And that's not the way it's supposed to be or has to be. And I'm not saying it's my mom's fault or my parents' fault. I was the first daughter. They were figuring out my, my mom, her experience of going through puberty growing up wasn't like, you know, done in the maybe the best way. And so there was just this inability to like, know how to deal with it. And so I developed an eating disorder because I started to hate my developing body. It didn't look the way I thought it should look. And so that's part of my story. And people can, you know, I've shared it before. But so I relate to those feelings. Obviously, you have additional things going on, too. Mm. But it's a vulnerable place to be in. Right. I mean, I wouldn't say that I was shamed for it, really. People didn't shame you. Right. But you still felt shame. Right. I still and felt I don't that. Think people shamed me either, but you feel ashamed because you don't know what to do with this experience. Yeah. I kind of, my parents never really had like the talk with me growing up. And I feel like if they just talked to me about it and they taught me about it, it would have helped greatly. Like, I know that's a really uncomfortable, almost kind of like compromising situation mm-hmm. for both the parent and the kid, but it's important. Like, growing up isn't comfortable. And there's, like, the parents who, like, who are hush-hush about it, think it's shameful. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's, like, the the adult women who are like, oh, it's such a beautiful experience. It's going to feel great. Like, <laughs> and you should like... be proud of it. You should put it up on a billboard yeah. that you're Flaunt having it. periods and free bleed and whatever else. But, but maybe I it's mean, somewhere in between. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important yeah. to be objective about it. Mm. Because it's, it's not going to feel great, but it's a necessary part of becoming an adult. And it's beautiful because it can bring your puberty, at, once you've sexually developed, can bring life into the world. Right. It can lead to, like, all of these beautiful things. It's all for a good reason. Yeah. And it and it's, it's not supposed to have shame, but shame can be part of it because we're in a broken world navigating how to deal with our own emotions. But it's just yeah. a part of our design. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a very, like, realist and mature 
and and loving view because it's actually like seeing the humanity of the person and, and their biology and accepting it instead of over dramatizing it in one way or the other, basically. Um, so what happened with this first therapist that you went to? What did you tell them? What did they tell? What did they tell you? Well, I mean, once gender was brought up, and that was my focus because I didn't really realize just how much my other the other things going on in my life were affecting me. It was like, oh, okay, so we're going to focus on that. What's your preferred name? What's your gender identity? What do you identify as? And what pronouns do you want us to refer to you as? So did the therapist explore with you whatsoever your discomfort with your with puberty and like just the process of becoming a woman because you're going through puberty still. I mean, your body image. Yeah, now is... now as a boy, I was feeling uncomfortable with the fact that I had a feminine form and that I was skinny and I didn't want to I wanted to have more muscle. I didn't want my breasts to be visible and I wanted I didn't want to have any curves whatsoever cuz I just wanted to look like all the other boys my age. And they were like, okay, so you have distress around your secondary sex characteristics and you feel like you don't really fit in with other girls. You've always felt like you've been more boyish. So so there was, no treat, yeah. there was no exploration, I guess. Of, no, not at all. There was no exploration of other issues you had even as a child, your experience of being just different and challenged in connecting with most girls and many boys. It was more just that you came out to the therapist. You said, I think I'm a boy or I am a boy. And, and it, it was just accepted as fact. Yeah. And they didn't, they didn't even, but it's curious that it's one thing to just accept it as fact. It's another thing to accept it as fact and not be interested to understand how you came to that conclusion. Yeah. Um, I mean, the things I would tell them, like around my discomfort, around my body and not, not really fitting in, it was just accepted as part of me being a boy of my destiny. I find that peculiar. I'm curious your thoughts on this because it's almost like this to say, you know, for a young person to say, I'm, they're a girl and they say I'm a boy or they're a boy and they say I'm a girl. And there's no, and the, the evidence for it is that they think it and that they're uncomfortable with their body, right? And then the therapist or the psychological, you know, the, the medical community just accepts it as a fact. It almost feels like a sort of like religious belief in this destiny belief that the child has or the person has. Like their destiny is. I think that's what it really comes down to, honestly. The belief in a gender identity isn't really too dissimilar from a belief in a soul and that it's like this innate part of a person or innate, I should say. Yet it's disembodied. It's not actually a part of the body. And yet somehow it influences who the person really is. Yeah, it's a belief in a soul, in a different kind of soul that hates the body that it's been given. And then the therapist chooses and the medical community chooses to listen to this soul as opposed to the reality of the body and the person in front of them. So what happens next? Um, eventually, I, uh, I became dissatisfied with my therapist because... I had stuff going on at school and at home that he just wasn't 
really addressing at all. And Like what? I mean, I had all my electronics taken away for some time. And by your parents? Yeah. Why? Um It's happened so far back, I can't really remember the specific de- details. Not doing your but no, I think it was because uh, I had like uh, I had online friends, and I gave some of them my number, mm. and I guess like I got a text that uh, was associated with some I don't know. It was just some some name that my dad he just woke me up one day asking like who who this person was. And why I was messaging them. And I didn't know who he was talking about. I guess it was like an old number associated with a different name. But I didn't want him to know that I had friends online that I gave them, that I gave out my number to them. And so I was very adamant about not letting him check my phone. They just decided to take it away. Because were they afraid? Do you think that you were talking to people that were maybe predators? Probably, yeah. Do you think that's a valid concern absolutely i mean i could have been in that situation i actually was a few times over the years in what situation um speaking to to predators how could you how did you find out there were predators um i mean i think a better way of wording that would be weirdos (laughs) yeah i mean i There were a few people online, um, inside and outside the trans community, that I uh, that I had like online relationships with, and many of them were much much older than I was. That's a predator. Yeah. Um, And your parents kind of were onto this a little bit, and so they're like, "We're just going to cut this off." Because well, this is this actually happened quite a while before that actually started Mm -hmm. to happen. Are these men that you were? Most of them were. So you're a girl who's having all these other issues, things you're experiencing. You're having these online relationships with these older men who are basically preying on probably your vulnerabilities on the internet. And, but you still thought you were a boy at that point. Yeah. So did you think you were a gay boy? Yeah. I just, um, I mean, I was, I had like a- Did they think you were a girl or a boy? My parents? No, no. The people these these rela- these online these older men on the internet. Um, well, they just affirmed my identity and just went along with me calling myself a boy. So they knew you were a young girl who was struggling with gender dysphoria. And do you, did you know anything about them? Do you think there there was a particular sort of psychological type you were talking to that found you particularly attractive because you were going through this? I mean, it was all sorts struggle? of different people, but a lot of them were identifying as LGBT. A lot of them called themselves like gay or bisexual. Some of them were trans-identified males. And what does that mean? They're trans women. They call themselves they're they're biological males who identify as women. So a biological male identifying as a woman who is attracted to a young woman identifying as a young boy. Mm. So it's still biological male to biological woman. But it's just both. a very roundabout way of having a straight relationship, basically. <laughs> it's a lot of work for a straight relationship. Um, so how old were you when you had your first online relationship with somebody who was much older? And how much older approximately were they? Um, I was probably like 14-ish. 
13, 14. And a lot of them weren't necessarily like relationships. Some of them were just like short, I guess you would call them flings or like I would just like exchange like uh, like sex or like nudes with them. And how old were they? Um, Anywhere from like my age to like late teens, maybe early 20s. Okay. There's actually one person who was, he was in his mid-20s and he was in the military. Okay. And um, and in most of those cases, were they, it was all different kinds of men, in like some men who identified as women, but otherwise just some of them were just For the most part, men. it was just, it was just men. Okay. And a lot of them would call themselves like gay or bisexual, but. Because you I think, thought you were a boy at the time. Yeah, so. yeah. I think mm-hmm. that. They kind of did that to lure me in a little bit, to ease me a little bit um, by affirming my identity, but they were still attracted to women, Mm. and it was just part of their ploy to exploit me sexually. Mm. Have you heard of autogynephilia? Yeah. What do you think about it? It's kind of a... It's a very open-ended question. Yeah, I mean, do you think that that it's a? Do you think that affected you, or do you think that it affects a lot of people who struggle with um, gender dysphoria? Um, I mean, I probably, to an extent, had like a female equivalent of it, which I guess would be called auto androphilia. Um, I mean, I was mostly attracted to men, but sometimes I would have like fantasies where that that involved women and. Mm-hmm that I was the male in the situation. And that might have been part of it. And I think that's really just like a normal part of... I wouldn't want to call it like exploration or mm-hmm. experimentation. But I wouldn't say that's really something that's like clinically significant. But mm-hmm. I also had researched... Um, like medical transition and taking testosterone a little bit. And I really liked imagining the way that I would look on testosterone. I liked having, I was looking forward to like having more muscle and looking more masculine and having some of the changes of testosterone on my body. Um, but none of that was really explored. Like, they would ask, like, what my sexuality was, who I was attracted to, but they would never really, they would never really factor that into how that might affect my gender dysphoria mm-hmm. or my desire to transition. Hmm. They meaning the therapist. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I was still mostly attracted to men, mm-hmm. but I was just too young and too deluded to know how this would affect my ability to get into a relationship with a man. Mm-hmm. Nobody had really brought that up with me. Hmm. Meaning for you to transition, and we're going to talk about what that, what those exact steps were for you, but for you to transition, it was never really discussed what that would mean in a future relationship or even a marriage to a man. Yeah. I mean, my endocrinologist told me like, well, you might experience vaginal atrophy. She told this to a 13 year old expecting her to know what that meant. And what I knew of it was like, okay, it causes the walls, the lining of the vagina to thin out a little bit and dry out a little bit and not produce as much lubrication. And it might cause some pain if I were ever to have sex. But that's okay because I could just use lubrication or if it got bad enough or I could prevent the, 
I could prevent it from getting bad enough by taking topical estrogen at some point. To and counteract it, the testosterone. Yeah, yeah. And it only affects that area of the body. Maybe like a little bit of the estrogen would get into the bloodstream, but not enough to really affect the rest of the body. But I did that. Um, I wasn't informed that this atrophy actually would affect the general pelvic region. And I... I started getting really bad cramps in my uterus from time to time. And the topical estrogen made that go away for the most part. But I was also having some issues with my urinary tract. And I started getting a lot of infections. And sometimes I would even get like blood or towards the end of my transition tissue in my urine. From taking testosterone. Yeah. And it got a little bit, it got worse for a little while after I stopped taking it. It's gotten better since, but I still have some issues with my urinary tract. Like, I don't really get infections or anything like that anymore. No blood clots, no tissue, but um, it's still kind of difficult to, like, fully, like, empty my bladder, or I, I have to use restroom um, a little bit more frequently than the average woman. Um, and I was also told that it might affect my fertility. Again, I was 13. I wasn't thinking about having kids. So it was just like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to have kids. And if I wanted to in the future, I mean, I could just use like a like a surrogate or IVF, right? Because I thought it was that simple. I thought those technologies were flawless and that there would always be another option for me. Did they explain what that really meant? Like this could kill your fertility. So that means you will never be able to bear, carry, gestate, deliver, birth your own child. No, there was never really, a discussion of she that. She didn't really go into detail at all. And before my, my mastectomy, I was told, like, I'm not going to be able to breastfeed my kids ever. But I was living in the mindset of being a male. Why would I want to breastfeed a kid, right, if I, was, if I wanted to be a father rather than a mother? Because what father does that? That's the mother's role. And I'm not, I'm not a mother. But you still were attracted to men, right? Yeah. So if you got married, in your mind, maybe you were thinking, well, I would marry a man. Yeah. So as as I got mother... older, it was like, well, if I were to have kids one day, what would they call me? It was kind of confusing to call both parents dad. I mean. And you thought you would just have someone else, a surrogate. You'd have a child through IVF and surrogacy. Yeah, I thought that you could just, I wanted to have biological kids still, but I thought that they could just like extract the eggs from my body and then plant it in another woman's body and it would just be that simple. Because I was naive. I was mm. an adolescent. Yeah, how old were you when you had a double mastectomy? I was 15. Okay, that's such a crazy thing to so many people listening. And who did the double, vasect double mastectomy? Um, I had it with a, with a surgeon in my healthcare provider. What was the healthcare provider that approved this? Kaiser Permanente. Okay. Which one? Which Kaiser? Um, the hospital that I underwent surgery at was in San Rafael. Mm. So in like the Oakland, San Francisco area. It's so crazy because I have family that has used Kaiser in that area. And I've been to Kaiser in that area because I used to live in the East Bay. What year was it when you had the double mastectomy? It was 2020. So during COVID? Yeah. Um, so they were doing double... So they were delaying... Hold on. During COVID, 
they were delaying like knee surgeries for people in chronic pain because of COVID. Right. But they were giving a 15-year-old healthy girl double mastectomy. Yep. This was in June, so most of the lockdowns were only barely starting to to open back up again. And um, they also— I mean, women who delivered children during that time couldn't even have their husband in the room. What? That was a thing. That was a I thing. knew about the knee surgery thing, but not. And you had to wear a mask the whole time. I mean, there was, you couldn't, if someone was dying, your loved one was dying in the hospital, you couldn't go see them. But they gave a healthy 15-year-old girl. Right. Anything considered elective or unnecessary wasn't done during this time. But apparently this was necessary. It was life-saving care, they said, even though they did examinations of my breast tissue before and after, and uh, when they actually looked at the tissue afterward, after taking it out, they, uh, I remember in the appointment afterward, they told me, like, they told me specifically that there weren't any signs of, of cancer, and even though that wasn't the reason why I underwent the surgery, it was just part of the protocol to tell me that. So I was perfectly healthy. It was healthy tissue that they took out of me. Do you think about, was that now... From the vantage point that you have now, looking back on that, is it traumatizing to think about? Absolutely. It's horrifying. Like, I... I just shouldn't have been able to... This shouldn't have been an option for me. It hurts knowing, like... I... I could have just grown up without any intervention and I could have been completely normal. And I wouldn't be dealing with all the stuff that I am now. I'm having some pretty serious complications from my surgery um, on top of all the, the trauma that it's caused me. And if somebody just told me like, this isn't going to make you into a boy and there's no guarantee that doing any of this is going to resolve your distress you're perfect as you are as a woman. The issue isn't your body. It's the way that you think of it. And no matter what you, what you do to yourself, what drugs you take, what, what surgeries you get, you're always going to be a woman. And you are enough. I wouldn't be dealing with any of this right now. Did anyone say that to you? I mean, there were times when, growing up, when my mom would tell me, like, oh, I was a tomboy, too. It's okay. Like, I eventually grew up, and I'm the way that I am now. So you'll you'll probably be just like me. But I, I, was, I was a kid, and I, there was still something. Even hearing stuff like that, I still felt like there was something wrong with me because I still had a lot of other stuff going on. I thought that this was the only answer I had. And it was the only one that was presented to me. So the first therapist you went to immediately tells you, immediately starts the affirmation, which in the state of California, my understanding is you have to affirm. It's the one legal approach. And and the word affirm is so deceptive. Because affirm what? You're not actually affirming them. It's a You're delusion. actually 
It's we're just letting them believe that there's something that they're not. And it's not just a delusion, though. It's it's something that leads. It's a roadway to severe harm. It's, I mean, really, it's a lifelong, a lifelong path of medical intervention. So what was your first experience being put on testosterone? How soon after you tell your parents you're a boy, you go to the therapist? How how quickly did they put you on testosterone? Um, I'd say maybe like two or three months after I was formally diagnosed with gender dysphoria was when I started telling my parents, like, I really want to get hormones. I really want to go down. I want to become a real boy, basically. And that was when they were starting to get really, really suspicious. Like, why do you feel this way? What is it that's making you feel like you have to be a boy? So your parents you have were to. asking you those questions. Right. Why do you feel like you have to go down? Why do you feel like you have to take these treatments? Like, you're you're really young, and you might not know what you you really want. And we don't make you, we don't want you making permanent decisions at the age that you are. But I just kept pushing and pushing, and they were really concerned. So they went to my doctors, and they were like, "Why? Why is she? Why is she pushing so hard for this? Why does she want to do this so bad? And don't we have another option? Like, why does she have to go down this path at at such a young age? Why can't we just wait until she's eighteen? And what's the likelihood that she's going to regret this if we don't? And my doctors were like, I mean, it's not normal for kids to, I'm sure you know as a parent, like, it's not normal for a kid to to push, push for this so much. It's clear that she knows what she wants. I mean, if you don't affirm her and her identity and allow her to, to make this decision, if you don't let her transition, it's very likely that she's going to kill herself. So your parents who sound like they were trying to deal with the situation as best they could, and they were concerned, you know, this sounds quick and soon when you're, how old are you, 12 at this time? 13. You're 13 years old, and they're asking the doctors, and is this a psychiatrist that you're talking to or a psychologist? Who, what is the, who, who, who told, who first told your parents that basically a threat to your parents that Chloe will kill probably themselves. I don't know what language, you know, what pronoun they used, but, or himself, I don't know the name you were using, but. Leo. Leo. If you, if you don't let Leo be Leo, meaning get these surgeries and take testosterone, then Chloe will basically die. When they told me about this, they only told me about this um, recently. I didn't know that this happened until after I stopped transitioning. And the way that they spoke about it, it sounded like there were multiple doctors that, I would speak, that they were speaking to. So I'm assuming it was a gender specialist and mm -hmm. maybe like a nurse in the room. So they went to talk to a gender specialist because they just didn't know what to do, felt right. it over their heads. I mean, probably felt very overwhelming for them. This is also during COVID, right? Or is this before um, No, COVID? this happened before I, this was I before COVID started medically started. transitioning. Okay, because that, okay, that the mastectomy was during COVID, early COVID. Yeah. And they're they, and they basically told that their daughter would could die. Yeah. It was made out themselves. to be a life or death situation. And so what did your parents do after they were told that? They were sold into it. 
they really didn't think there was any other option because they weren't given one. And so then after you start testosterone, what happens next? Um, about a month before I was put on testosterone, I was put on puberty blockers to stop uh, my body from naturally producing any hormones and just clearing them out to make way for the exogenous hormones. And that was really tough. It was... Uh, it was a chemically induced menopause, actually. So I was experiencing like hot flashes, itching. I was very lethargic, very sleepy throughout the day. And uh, it just wasn't a pleasant experience. And I really just wanted to move on to the next big step, which was testosterone. And so after that month or so long period of being completely devoid of sex hormones and almost kind of sickly even, it felt great to finally have some hormones back in my body. And it was androgens, so it felt pretty amazing. I mean, I felt like I was on top of the world. Like I was, it really helped to, to boost my confidence and I had, my energy levels were back up and better than ever. And I started to feel almost sort of like a competitive streak. Mm -hmm. And... Like a competitive streak, like I'm going to crush this being a boy thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, it did. I also, it was, it was, it was like, a, to me, it was like a big step. So naturally I would feel pretty, pretty giddy about it. Um, I also already... had a pretty steep increase in my libido, which was mm. pretty difficult for me to deal with. Had you already at this point had your period? Yeah. Um, I... Had only been having them for about like a year by that point. I started getting periods when I was about 12 years old. And it was so early that my cycle hadn't even regulated itself yet. And I also didn't know that there was more than just one stage in the menstrual cycle. Like all I knew, um, all I knew is that there's a period and then that's it. Somehow you can get pregnant. I didn't know how that worked at all. Um, no one ever told you? No. And I didn't. None of my sex ed classes ever addressed it. I learned what I learned what ovulation was from a meme when I was sixteen years old. What did you learn in your sex ed classes? Um, How to have sex? No, what was, um, what it was, was it was really class? bare bones. Honestly, like we learned about gametes, and then uh, the most we were ever shown about sex was like, "Don't have sex." We're not going to explain why, but you can't have sex. Don't do that. But there's and the, and then they they showed us like a video of a woman giving birth, and uh, like pictures of like of genitalia, both male and female, infected with STDs. <laughs> but they never explained why things like sex are so important or intimate, or or even fertility, how right. your body works as a woman, or right. a man's fertility, how that works. So I was being expected to make decisions around things like that that I didn't even understand yet. And they didn't make any effort to explain those things to me. So there was no informed consent? Absolutely not. And how can you consent when you're a minor in the first place? You can't. So you're on testosterone. When did you decide you wanted the double mastectomy? Um, well, I was about two, between like two to three years on, on testosterone. Um, I had been using like a, a binder through that time 
I started using one after I started taking testosterone. And if you don't know what a binder is, it's kind of like they come in either half body or full body, and it kind of looks like a tank top, but in the upper part of the garment, it's like a compression area. And they work by basically pressing the breasts into the upper body to make it look flatter. And on one hand, like, I didn't really want to be seen without it on under my shirt because I didn't want anybody to know that I had breasts because I wanted everybody to think of me as a guy. And I already did look like a male. I Testosterone was pretty effective on me, and I passed considerably well as the opposite sex. I actually had a much deeper voice than I did now, and it was deeper than most of the boys than I, that I was friends with throughout high school. Um, so it would be really weird for this person who looks and sounds just like a guy to have this very feminine-looking area of the body. And... But I was I was also very uncomfortable in it. Like it it fit well. It didn't really cause me any pain per se. But I, I, I heard like from other trans trans identified females, like how they would experience pain in their back, in their upper back, in their in their breasts, in the middle of their chest, in their rib cage from using one. I never got any of that, so I thought it was just fine. But it actually distorted my rib cage a little bit. And even now, it's it's been two or three years since I've used a binder, and I still see like the little, I wouldn't say like dents, but the bottom of my ribcage kind of flares out a little bit because they, I used a supposedly safe and reputable brand, but these things work by pushing the breast into the ribcage. And especially if you're developing, there is no safe way to go about that. It's like it's like the foot binding. You know, it's just it it it's now it's just binding something else to fit into the society to kind of fit basically in order to fit in to society's expectations as you're as you're experiencing them in a more backwards way, even. So you're doing that, and then. But what made you decide to get the mastectomy? I just got really sick of, of doing it after mm -hmm. a while. And I started to think of myself as being just like any other boy. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be able to take my shirt off like all the other boys without worrying. Um, and I also had an incident in eighth grade um, where I had been sexually assaulted by somebody who had been harassed, who had been bullying me throughout for transitioning throughout the school year. And I didn't really realize just how much it affected me because I was I was already transitioning by that point. I was already living I was already in the mindset of actually being a boy. So it was like, well, I just have to be tough about it. I can't I can't I can't be too upset about this. And so Wait, a guy, another eighth grade boy. Yeah, and he sexually assaulted you. I mean, how can can you share? Obviously, I can only imagine how traumatic it was. So, whatever you're comfortable sharing. He groped me. He um he just walked up to me in the middle of the classroom and he squeezed my breasts. He looked me right in the eyes as he did it. And were there other people there? Yeah, the classroom was full, and yet nobody did a thing about it. That's horrific. 
did that was the teacher there yeah he didn't he didn't see what happened though and i was afraid to report it to any staff members because i was afraid of getting in trouble myself i the school i went to just sucked and they failed to accommodate me throughout the school years um i had an iep in place that they just refused to abide by and at one point they even told my parents like it's it's our responsibility to help the child and not you. And I didn't really have a lot of, a lot of friends there. And I was even among like the like the teachers and staff members. I wasn't really one of the. I wasn't like a favorite kid by any means. Um, Do you and think- I felt like if if I did report it, like they'd probably just let the kid off with a slap on the wrist. And I didn't know like if he was going to come back after like a few days, after a week, and if he could potentially do something worse to me if he did. I just didn't want to, I didn't want to try it. Do you think there's any connection between being groped, having your breasts groped as a teen girl who's going through gender dysphoria and all these other things that you're going through and getting the mastectomy? That's why I started binding, actually. I didn't use a binder up until that point. That was what triggered it for me. To protect yourself. Yeah. It was you like, were I don't... literally putting on kind of like an armor. Yeah. I mean, I, I knew at, like at, one, at one point I wanted to start hiding my breasts, but I just kind of kind of put it off because it was like, well, like I'm, I'm not as developed as some girls, right? And I wear like baggy t-shirts and sweatshirts anyways. So nobody's really going to care. Why would they care? Like they already knew me as a girl. Like they already know like I'm biologically female. So why would why would anybody give a crap about that? And then that happened. It was like, okay, I guess I'll have to start start hiding this part of me sooner than later. I'm so sorry that happened to you. Um, did your did any did you t- did your therapist know that that happened to you? Did you were you able to share no. that with anyone? No, I didn't tell any any adults about it. Did any therapist ever ask you about any kind of sexual abuse or? They, sexual assault. They probably did at some point, but I didn't even recognize this as a sexual assault. It just didn't register me to me at the time that it was. Because when I when I thought of sexual assault, I would think of like all the stories I heard from like other girls and women growing up of being like raped or beaten. It was nothing of that sort. Like something worse could have happened to me. It wasn't the end of the world, right? So, but he's publicly squeezing your breasts to right. mock you and shame you. Uh, and no one's intervening or doing anything. And he just, what happened next? He just walked off. Yep. Um, so after you get the mastectomy, what happens? How did you feel? Um, I mean, in the immediate moments after, I actually woke up a few times before the medication fully wore off. And I would try to stand up a little too quickly. And I, <laughs> they, they, um, they made me lay back down and go to sleep a few times because of that. Hopefully, and I, I almost, after the yeah, surgery. I almost, I almost threw up a few times because of that. But um, once I was like fully awake and fully conscious, and uh, like I was aware of what just happened, it was the greatest thing in the world. Mm. Like I'm, I finally look like a real boy now. Maybe not right now. I mean, they. I've got these big scars across my chest and these skin grafts 
that are going to take some time to heal, but eventually I'm going to look like, I'm going to be just like any other boy, but I'm going to have these warrior scars on top of it. And I'm finally going to be able to, to take my shirt off in the locker room and not have to wear a shirt, not have to cover up while I swim or go on a jog or, or work out. And it's going to be great from here on. And I mean, that was a very convenient, very happy way of looking at it, but that never happened. I'm, I'm still healing. What do you mean? Um, I mean, I've had some issues with my skin grafts over the years. At first, there were the skin grafts I used were my my areolas, so they they took they took them off, and they the way it was described to me, I, I guess they they said it in such a way to make it easier for like a teenager to digest, but it was like. Okay, so we'll uh, we'll take your areolas off, and then we'll scrape the skin on a part of the chest, uh, kind of like a like a deep knee scrape, but more controlled. And then we're going to place the areolas onto that onto that area, so, so it's in a more masculine position. They said. Um, and at first, the the grafts seemed to he be healing okay, other than the fact that they were superficially they were they were a little bit dry on top, but. As of last year, um, around this time, they did a 180, and uh, they've started to leak fluid. Does, do you know what that means? Have you talked to a doctor about that? I've tried. Um, I mean, I went to my... Uh, I, went to, I went back to my surgeon for the first time in a few years, and I tried to, to get his help. I got like a five-minute Zoom call with him, and that appointment was for two purposes. One, to to report that I regretted the surgery, and two, to get some help with my complications and maybe figure out whatever is going on. And uh, the whole time, it felt like he was being really rude to me, really dismissive of my concerns, and I was telling him, like, I'm having to bandage my chest every day so that whatever this fluid is doesn't get onto my clothing and bedding. And he just told me, yeah, yeah, keep doing that. Yeah, that's, that's, that's normal. Just, just keep, just keep managing it and put some Vaseline on it and this to is keep how, it moist. This is said. how many years after the surgery? Two years. So it's been two years since the surgery and you're still experiencing this. Yeah, I was, my grafts were supposed to be mostly fully healed by around a year and a half and did, did he have an expl any explanation for why it was happening no no there zero he no. did this to you and he didn't know he had zero clue about why and he just said perpetually bandage yourself yeah for a wound that i created yes on a 15 and it's year old not, girl i didn't what a what a butcher I, I try to look up butcher, whatever whatever's a human happening. Butcher. Yeah, I try to look up whatever's happening. I never had heard or seen an, seen anything like this before. Can you name who this uh, surgeon is? Um, his name is. He has an Asian name. I, I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation of this, but I think it's Doctor Lehope. When did you first start doubting your transition? 
Um, I didn't really have like any doubts about transitioning up until after I had the surgery. So for the longest time, I was very confident in presenting myself masculinely and calling myself a boy and being seen as such. And it wasn't until after my breasts were gone that I started realizing like, wow, I sometimes I miss being pretty. I wish that I could grow my hair out and wear makeup without being judged because now everybody thinks I'm a boy. And if I were to do that, I get called all sorts of names. People would like, people would call me gay. I'd get, I'd probably get harassed for a little bit. There were a few times when my my girlfriends put uh, like nail polish on me and then I would, I would go to class and the boy next to me would be like, why are you wearing nail polish? Why are you wearing earrings? Are you gay? And like I... But weren't if I were you to, consider, wouldn't you have considered yourself gay because you were still attracted to men, right? Yeah, I was. But I didn't want to be seen that way because, mm. I mean, even though I live in, in California in a pretty, I guess you'd say, progressive time, in high schools especially, like, there's still that stigma against mm. people who are gay or, or even people who say are male but they present themselves more femininely or mm. vice versa. And I just didn't want to deal with that. So when did you first, when did you, what process did you go to, go through before eventually deciding to, to detransition? Eventually my feelings around, around that started to, I started to go into a downward spiral basically. I became more and more distressed over the way that I looked every day and I hated that. I no longer had soft feminine features. Now I had muscle and big shoulders and my breasts were gone. And I thought that I wasn't bothered by my, by, by my mastectomy for the longest, but I just wanted to be pretty and, and have curves in other places and to be effeminate looking. But I started comparing myself again to other women and feeling like I just didn't match up and I was also comparing myself to other men as well. And I realized like I'm well for one, I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty short. I'm like five foot three, five foot four, which is like a pretty average height for a woman, but that's way shorter than the average male. So that would be that would be kind of strange. And now that I was presenting myself as a guy. I mean, I wasn't bad looking, and there were quite a few girls who thought that I was attractive, but I didn't really have anything, any attraction to them. And I felt like, like even if I did want to pursue a girl, I'm not actually a biological male. I don't have the parts that they're looking for, and I don't want to. I don't want to disappoint anybody. And. The few boys at school who were attracted to me were not the most savory of people. A lot of them were like really into drugs or like they, it kind of felt like I was almost like a fetish to them. Mm. Like I was like, I looked like a boy, but I, I was small of a short stature, skinny, and they 
didn't really see me as much more than that. Do you think pornography played a role? Pro- yeah, probably. For those boys? That's, it, that's probably part of it. Did yeah. it play any role, do you think, in your transition? Yeah, it was. it really distorted my view of like sex and intimacy, but also my own body. And uh, it's going to sound kind of funny, but BuzzFeed and other other publications like that really, really made that a lot worse. Because I, I first discovered like BuzzFeed and other like th- those kinds of sites mm-hmm. through like when I was a kid by looking up, I don't know, like which Disney princess am I? And then they have like all those quizzes, mm-hmm. but then they have the other less appropriate content on there, especially about things like sex. And from those, there would be articles like encouraging like teenage girls, like younger and younger, to explore their sexuality and what they like as early as possible. And that things like casual sex or being kinky are good and we should all strive to be that way. And none of it really discussed like the real meaning of sex. About the about the the intimacy of it and why it's so important and how it's designed right for for intimacy and pleasure and for also life right it, it was it was really like mm-hmm. pleasure above all and pleasure without love which in the end doesn't bring pleasure <laughs> like long lasting pleasure which i would call peace or joy or happiness right right and my distorted view of sex and relationships on top of my inability to get into relationship because of my transition, I was I I had a lot of stress around that because I all my friends were starting to get boyfriends and girlfriends and I was missing out on that and I felt like I was a freak or something. Like there was something wrong with me. And so I compensated by getting into those online relationships by sexting older, often random men. And it just it all worked to to make me feel so much worse. And it was difficult socially for reasons other than than romance now it was a lot harder to to make friends to be as intimate as I could be as a girl because now I was taking on the role of a boy and there wasn't really a lot of room for me to talk about like my own personal hardships and what I was going through and all I really had was the internet at what point did you decide I want I, I'm done with this? At some point, it was like, well, I never felt like I was enough when I was a girl, but I feel the same exact way as a boy now. I guess I just can't be good enough as either. So maybe I'm not either. Maybe I'm just non-binary. Maybe I'm something between the two sexes. But no matter what I did, no matter what I called myself or what pronouns I used or how I how I dressed, I just kept getting worse. It wasn't up until uh, at some point in my late in my junior year that I realized just what I was doing to myself, that it was making things worse. And I couldn't go back. And that was when um, I started to learn about things like uh, 
like motherhood and parenting and how how children's minds develop and how they see the world that it was like wow this is i didn't know all this that that's really important to me and i want to be a mother one day but how am i if i'm going to if i'm on these medications that that might affect my ability to have kids and now that i i can't breastfeed i just realized how big just how important that really is that breasts aren't just a sexual object that there's so much more than something to be played with or to feed a child with because even breastfeeding is very important to the bond between a mother and her child and things like um well, breast milk, it has things like uh, like pre and probiotics in it that help baby's immune system develop. And breasts and physical affection in general help to regulate a baby's body temperature and uh, other parts of their health. And I'm not going to have that anymore. I never, I never will. And it was taken away from me before I even got to become a woman, before I understood what that meant. And that was, that really horrified me. I I couldn't keep living like that because now I knew what it really meant. What, when you had that realization, what did you do? Um. Well, first I went through a few a few weeks of just the most horrific distress and not being able to to focus on anything really i cried quite a bit and i withdrew pretty much completely and then i finally came to terms with the fact that i'm still a woman and nothing could change that and I, w- I was still kind of stuck in the mindset of I could just identify out of whatever I was feeling. So I didn't really, I was still kind of wondering like, well, what is my identity now? But now my transition was was over for good. And I told my mom, I told a friend of mine, and I just didn't know what to do with myself for a while. I, I grew out my hair, I started buying new clothes, but... Did you stop taking testosterone? Yeah, I took my final testosterone shot um, almost two years ago at this point. And in May of 2021. I was, I was 16. Are you... Do you know if you're able to have kids? I haven't gotten a fertility test yet. Um, I got my period back uh, about two years. No, um two months after stopping testosterone very quickly. And uh, my periods seem to be, re- be regular now, which is a good sign. And now, like, based on, like, the, the symptoms that I'm experiencing at a given time, I, I, can, I can tell which part of the cycle I'm at. It's very, like, it's not... It's a possibility that I could be having anovulatory cycles. But I think... I'll be able to conceive a kid. You I just are, don't yeah. know if, like, how 
basically skipping half of puberty might mm-hmm. affect other parts of that, like my egg quality, whether my hips mm-hmm. have expanded enough to safely, naturally give mm-hmm. birth. Um, but you started puberty blockers a f- several years into pu- puberty. Yeah. So there are obviously detransitioners who they had puberty blockers before they even had a puberty. So I think that, you know, I'm I, I'm going to pray and hope for that for you. Thank you. What's what's next? I mean, well, before what's next, what's now? Because you're doing some incredible things. We were just joking earlier about the New York Times is after you this morning. Oh, that was beautiful. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's so beautiful when the media, when the big, one of the biggest papers in the country writes a hit piece on you, on me. Um, I can't say when I started doing this a year ago that I expected anything like that. But honestly, I wouldn't have it any other way. Well, it's listen, kind of fun. It, well, the way that getting to know you a little bit, the way that you take it in, in stride is awesome. It's definitely a very warrior woman. Um I mean, I've already lost a lot. It's I wouldn't say like my attitude is like I don't have much more to lose because I still have, despite what I've lost, I still have a lot. There's still a lot in this world for me. But like there's, I have to get justice for what happened to me, but I also have to prevent it from happening to anybody ever again. Well, you are already doing incredible things to accomplish that. And it's amazing to watch you do that. It's one of the reasons I was so excited to talk to you. (laughs) Thank Um, you so much. You're just getting started. Um, I believe it. I want to talk about what your goals are with your mission moving forward. But first, the decision for you to publicly share your story, which I can only imagine how much courage that took. You made that decision about a year ago, right? Yeah. So it's been one year since you've been publicly sharing your story. Just over a year. What was that like to first publicly share your story of detransitioning? Yeah, I mean, a while after I stopped transitioning, I knew like I wanted to to start talking about my story, but I didn't really know where to start. Um, So I would just... I. Immediately after I detransitioned, I was pretty much kicked out by the trans community for being an, um, what's the word? An apostate. And they just. They called you an apostate? No, but, but they treated me as such. Um, because you just violated the, yeah. the fundamental rule of their religion, which is. Gender affirming care is health care. And you dared to criticize the surgeon that cut off your healthy breasts i mean before that i would just talk about the pain and regret that came from it and how i felt like my doctors lied to me and they did and i was told like you should have known exactly what you were doing you knew what you were doing to yourself don't put this on us but they said that it was your only option yeah and they and they told you with every with every step the more extreme it got, the more they celebrated it. Like before, I think. What do you mean? When I had my celebrate, what did what did that look like to celebrate it? When I had my mastectomy, that was probably the most praise I'd ever gotten in my lifetime up until that point. Like the most I, I had, 
was probably like, like my parents or classmates telling me that they liked my drawings. It was, it was incredible. So but now, now that I regret it, now that it causes me pain, they would, they blamed it on me. And some of them would even make fun of me for regretting it. Well, I, I just want to unpack that for a minute because I think that's such an incredibly important experience that you had, which is that in your entire life, the thing you'd most been praised for was your art until you had your mastectomy. And then this whole... And starting on testosterone and the other parts of the transition process. So the thing to affirm about your identity, your humanity, most for other people became that you were on these medical treatments. Yeah. And then when you chose to stop the medical treatments and expressed regret, what happened? What did they do? To, what did they say to you? What did they say to you online? Chloe? There is... There is a... Uh... This one person, also a trans-identified female, who I had known since I was about 13. And um, I think this person had always been jealous of me because I had I had a loving family and I was able to get on these treatments so early. And they weren't always the nicest to me, but they did celebrate my transition, my especially my... my um, my mastectomy the most and now that I was regretting it they were trying to like gaslight me into thinking that we had a conversation about the difference between body dysmorphia and real gender dysphoria whatever that means I don't think it's real personally and they even told me like you were 13 you weren't a toddler you knew exactly what you're doing it doing and why you wanted it I knew at the same age that I wanted to, to transition. So why wouldn't you? This is your fault. Doesn't it feel bad? Doesn't it hurt having your breasts be gone? Forever. And, um... Meaning they still had their breasts? Probably, yeah. I... It's pretty twisted. It was one of the most deranged interactions I've ever had, actually, because after... At some point, after taking out all that whatever on me, they started crying to me about how they had been sexually abused at a young age. They were so close to seeing why this was affecting them so much, why my regret was affecting them. So I think it's so clear that this individual had like their sexual trauma was influencing them, their decision to transition. And that's why they didn't want to be a girl anymore. And, and that's, I see that, that, I see that quite a bit. They were angry that you were regretting it. Yes. And confidently in a way regretting it. Yeah, and I got the same kind of reaction from a lot of other individuals in the trans community. It was like, it was all from like older transgender people, many of them, many of whom hadn't even started on hormones yet. And... I was supposedly in the most ideal situation to transition. Like, I was super young, um, and I had a supportive family and friend group around me. I passed as the opposite sex very well. I was pretty much indistinguishable from a real male. And yet, it still hurt me. I still regretted it. So as somebody who wants to live that kind of lifestyle... There's that sort of cognitive dissonance in like being told like this is life-saving healthcare, 
and that is the most ideal way to doing it to do it and seeing somebody who had been through exactly that having been hurt by it you shattered their you shattered their cult very closely i was very close to but um after and a so while the, they the response is anger against yeah, you because yeah. you're daring to to reveal the i think truth. it's very based in fear yeah so after a while i it's kind of like when you and this is a real phenomenon when people join cults then leave they become anathema you know the the cult members have a t- profound hatred and disgust for people that leave their cult the ones that stay yep i mean after a while i'd been harassed so much what did that harassment look like um sometimes it was like random people dming me stuff like you looked better as a boy or like you should have stayed a boy or keep that to yourself you're disgusting Sometimes, like, random people, like, stalking me, like, leaving me in comments on my posts, on my personal social media. And I just didn't want to deal with that anymore. So I went silent about it for a bit. But I also discovered that there were online communities having to do with detransition. And everything that these, that the transgender community was was telling me about detransition was a lie. And I knew there were so many people out there what who were, were just the, like this. What were those lies? What were two of the top lies that... The, the trans community, as you, we can call it, was telling you about detransitioning to try to scare you off from doing it. That this is rare. Mm-hmm. That um, that it never happens, meaning that people regret. Pretty much, yeah. And that when it does happen, it's usually due to social pressure. And regret is actually quite rare. Quite rare. So I shouldn't talk about my own regret because then that's imposing my own experience on other trans people. And I actually never heard about detransition at all up until I started detransitioning. I didn't even know what the word was until it happened to me. How common is it? Do you know? We have no idea. We have no idea. We do not know. Except if you go on certain Reddit, I mean, aren't there hundreds and hundreds of these stories coming out now? Yeah, the r slash detrans subreddit was one of my first stops. And then... How many posts on there? I don't know how many posts are on there, but there's the last time I checked, there were, I think, like 40, 50,000 people on there. And it's growing. 50,000 people on the D-Trans Reddit. I think they gain about 1,000 people per month even. It's insane. Yeah. For, for, For them to say this never happens or almost never happens. Um, Would another lie be there's no there's no consequences? Oh, yeah. I mean, I wasn't told that. I okay. I knew, like, there would be consequences to it, but I just, I wasn't at an age where I could really comprehend, fully appreciate mm-hmm. that. So I want to talk about your activism because you are traveling the country. You are speaking before legis- state legislatures, Congress. You are advocating on major media shows. Um, you're leading a crusade. When I first heard about you, I'm like, she reminds me of Joan of Arc, <laughs> except you're fighting for children, you know, instead of like, a, you know, a nation. But it is a nation to some degree, obviously, the children of this nation and the world. What's that like? Um, it's, I don't think any one word could describe just how wild and wild of an adventure it's been. I mean, just last year, I was pretty much a shut-in, like a total loser, kind of a stoner. Like, I just played video games all day and just didn't really do much like after I got my uh I was studying for my 
for my CHSPE, which is a diploma diploma equivalent. But I didn't really have any plans for life. I didn't really think that I would make it, honestly. What do you mean by that? Did or did you feel depressed? Yeah, I was really depressed. Like I thought I lost everything. I mean, I lost all my friends. I went through my senior year completely alone, so I just dropped out. That was why I was getting my certificate in the first place. This is after detransitioning. Yeah. I thought I lost everything. Um, but at the same time, there is still something keeping me going. Keeping me going. And I still wanted to make friends, even if they're outside of school. And I wanted to do my best to improve socially and maybe one day become a functioning member of society. I didn't know if that was a possibility for me, but I just kept going through. And uh, I started making up with my family because my relationship with them was really strained over the course of my transition. And just like being with like my, my little nieces and nephews, it helped me to realize just how important that is. And based on my interactions with the D-trans community, like I wanted to help other people in this situation. And like, I knew there has to be kids going through what I did. Cause when I first entered that community, it was pretty much only adults who had been through the, the transition process as adults. But I just had this intuition that there has to be a bunch of other kids like me, even if it would just was just one kid or 10 kids who are like me, that's far too many. And I wasn't ready for a while, but I knew like at some point I wanted to start speaking up and I started small at first. It was just all my, my personal social media. And then once I felt ready, I started, uh, I started posting about it on Twitter and I didn't really expect my platform to blow up the way it did. But at some point I had like journalists messaging me or like emailing me and, uh, I had some articles published on on me that helped to really increase my reach. And eventually one day, um, I had a, a parent working in a nonprofit group called Partners for Ethical Care reaching out to me saying that uh, Louisiana um, had a piece of legislation that was, uh, I think it was like a, conversion therapy ban that included like gender uh the gender affirming care model in it and she wanted me to like write a, a testimony for it but it turned out that the state of louisiana wouldn't accept written testimony if, and if i were to testify i would have to actually come there in person and so they asked me if i would be able to fly out and it I really wanted to do it. I knew it was like a pretty big opportunity for me to do that. But uh, when I told my parents about it, at first they were like, no, no, you're not doing that. Like, How old were you? I, I was 17. I was still a kid and I hadn't really been away from them that far away or for so long. So naturally they're pretty protective of me, especially since I wasn't completely healed yet. I wouldn't even say that I am now, but I was a lot worse off just a year ago than I am now. But it, it took some convincing on their part, but I'm 
I'm very glad that they said yes and that I've been able to to do this because it's been a wonderful journey, not only for me, but for for the other kids who are being affected by this. Your Twitter game is also very strong. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you're very articulate and a wonderful spokeswoman in show, showing the harm, but also advocating for good for, for children and, and for families. What are your goals? Well, I want to stop. I want to stop these treatments from ever being performed on children ever again. And I think the standards of care for both adult and child patients who have gender dysphoria need to be revised because as it is now, the current model doesn't allow for real informed consent. It pushes transition as the only option and it doesn't really give these patients the information that they need in order in order to make a decision on this. They're calling it life-saving care when really it's only taking parts of a perfectly functional body. Do you support bans on affirming care for minors, as they call it? Yes. They should never be performed on kids. What kind of treatment should they be giving, providing for children who face gender dysphoria? They need psychotherapy. Do you think if you'd gotten psychotherapy, you wouldn't be here today? Absolutely. I mean, I had a lot of compounding issues growing up that I feel like if they were properly addressed, I wouldn't have felt the need to become a boy, to become something that I wasn't. In the state of California, my understanding is psychotherapy for gender dysphoria without the affirming care model, meaning saying, yes, you are the opposite biological sex. You're not really a man you're not, or not really a boy. You're not really a girl is illegal. Right. I mean, it's mind blowing. And if you're a parent of a child who struggles with gender dysphoria and you say you don't want your child to be led down this path of mutilation, puberty blockers and the rest, then you can lose custody. Yep. It's abusive not to affirm your child, apparently. The language is so deceptive because it's not affirmation. I mean, it's what, exploitation. What is a parent for then if they're just supposed to let their kid have the reins on their own medical treatment? Have you been able to talk to your parents about what happened? I mean, in an objective way, about just about like what's happened. Yeah, but we haven't had like a like a deep emotional conversation about it. I'm kind of I'm kind of afraid of doing that right now just cuz I feel like it would be really deeply painful and I don't know if like we've if either I or my mom or dad have really recovered enough mm-hmm. to to have a conversation mm-hmm. like that yet. But at the same time it's like the clock's ticking. They won't be here forever and I have to have that conversation at some point. It's just a really scary prospect for me. Mm. They sound like they did their best with what they knew, but at the same time, I'm sure it's devastating deep down for them. They have a lot of guilt. Yeah. I think any parent would. That's a very um, gracious, you've got a very gracious um, approach with, in how you talk about them. Um, So you're going to end this evil practice once and for all, and then what? Once you've ended the evil practice of these 
the medical community that's been poisoned by this ideology, what are you going to do next? It's such a, it's such a simple question. And yet it's so overwhelming. Well, you're, you are 18. So <laughs> there's so many possibilities, you know, any 18 year old is like, I mean, the mass majority of 18 year olds are like, I don't know. This sounds interesting. This sounds interesting. So you're already like doing something tremendously significant. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, you've lived already so much life. Once this is said and done, there's still so many, so many things in this world to fight for. Like, I'm, I'd say that over the years, I've become a very family oriented person. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of issues affecting children and families and mothers and fathers right now. And I think. Once I'm done with this, I might continue on to that. But uh, what are some examples of things you're passionate about? For me, you might know. I mean, obviously, with live action, I've 2,500 children killed every day by abortion. So it's like these children are in danger of death, and I'm going to fight for them. But what are some things that you've seen that you're just concerned about and want to try to stop? I mean, a lot of parents now are totally laissez-faire in how they parent their kids. Now that's they go home. They have a nap, they they have a drink, they spend time with other adults rather than their own kids, and they're just letting the parent they're letting the screens parent their children mm. rather than themselves. And that's kind of how I got to this point. I learned I learned about transitioning entirely from social media. And my parents had no idea what I was seeing online. And usually it doesn't lead to something this extreme, but I've seen the same thing with a lot of my friends growing up in that their their parents let them have completely unrestricted internet access and they're exposed to things like pornography from a very young age. I think that's another issue that I'm that I'm very passionate about. I think that there needs to be age restrictions hmm. on pornography. I'm with on you websites. At- I would just ban it. <laughs> that's my position. Ideally, but that's yes. That's a step right there. Wow. Ideally, yes. But mm. in a state like California or pretty much throughout the U.S., mm. that would never happen, unfortunately. Do you want to have a family yourself one day? Oh, yeah. Nice. I hope I have a big family one day. That's awesome. But first, I want to travel the world. <laughs> um, And outside of activism and politics... I've kind of always been on the artistic side. Um, yeah, those those uh, pictures of the, <laughs> the funny noses of the yeah. historic figures. <laughs> I mean, other than the funny stuff that I would draw in class, mm. I've always liked doing things like um, like character design and illustration. Mm. It's very and cool. in recent years, I've gotten into fashion, and I you are very fashionable. <laughs> I love when you're when I've seen your videos and stuff when you're um, at at a rally or you're testifying. You're dressed like in a really cool, <laughs> you have a very cool aesthetic that I, I like. I feel like the way that I me. dress in a lot of these interviews and uh, at these uh, at these higher profile events, though, doesn't really capture me very well. I feel like it's a little too stuffy for me. I mean, That's I fair. like it. It's fancy and all, but... You're more of a, a, a relaxed vibe. Not necessarily. Um I mean, I always have some sort of crazy idea. I'm kind of building up my wardrobe right now. Um, the idea I have for a for a brand is um, if you're gonna say it, someone listening might steal it. So just proceed with caution. No, I'm just kidding. My listeners <laughs> are super, <laughs> super good. 
it's constantly evolving, but mm. um, and it's very it's very much a work in progress. I don't have a name for it or anything right now, but the the motto I have for it is of future and past, and there would be two distinct styles. One of them would be kind of nostalgic, very bright colors, a lot of a lot of cute motifs, and the other would be more futuristic, mm. almost kind of like a cyberpunk. Mm. I want to figure out how to do that without it being cringy. But I guess like mm. if you're going to cyberpunk, you're already uh-huh. in cringe territory. <laughs> I like it. Chloe, you're an inspiration. I'm really excited to see what you do with your one beautiful life. And thank you so much for sitting down with me in this kind of warm room. Sorry, it's kind of hot to tell me. And and just your courage in sharing so much personal stuff with the world, but so you can help other people and, and help other children. So thank you. Thank you so much. How can people find you and support your work? I'm on Twitter and Instagram at C-H-O-O-C-O-L-E. Nice. And what about, is there like a, a website to donate or... To contribute financially, I know that what you're doing is not free. You have to support yourself. I'm on DonorBox at DonorBox.org slash Chloe dash cool. Awesome. Thanks, Chloe. Oh, yeah. And I also have a... (laughs) (laughs) I have an ongoing lawsuit, and uh, the fund for it is on the official Center for American Liberty website. Nice. Nice. Sue them into oblivion for the children. That's the plan. For the children. Thank you, Chloe. You rock. (laughs) 